The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the long and volatile saga of West Wing infighting. From the outside, the White House appears to be a shining, peaceful center of American governance. But inside, there's a rowdy history of backstabbing, slander, deception, cheating, double-crossing, scamming, and swindling. But what do you expect when you combine powerful personalities with the most powerful office in the world? The colorful characters in the salacious stories that'll knock your socks off. Coming up on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Braun. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Former White House aide and best-selling presidential historian Tevi Troy is joining us to help us understand what a volatile place the White House can be. He served in several high-level positions in the West Wing, which gives him a unique perspective on the occasionally tense and explosive relationships within the executive branch. He's written a few terrific books on the presidency, including Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Tevi, we're all loosened up, ready to jump in the ring. Ring the bell. Let's go. Welcome to American POTUS. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's a lifelong dream to be on this show. <laughs> Any show that talks about the presidency is good in my book. Wonderful. Well, well, thank you, Tevi. I really enjoyed this book. Can you first tell us, how did White House rivalries change with the advent of the executive office of the president in the early 20th century? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question, because that is exactly what my book, Fight House, addresses. You know, there have been rivalries in politics forever. I mean, we can go back to the Roman times and there were rivalries in politics there. And obviously throughout our great Republic, there have been rivalries and people just watch this musical Hamilton. Mm -hmm. It talks about the the so-called rap battles between Hamilton and Jefferson and, and Lincoln had a cabinet that was team of rivals. But what I argue in fight house is that something in the character of these rivalries changed when you had the creation of a white house staff, which really, happens under Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, but really develops under Truman because he's the first person to enter with the White House staff. Mm -hmm. And here you have this development of somebody who is next to the president, namely a White House aide, who is advising the president on X, whereas then you have a cabinet member who thinks that he or she should be advising the the president on X. Mm -hmm. So uh, the most famous tension is always between the secretary of state who sees themselves as the top foreign policy advisor and the national security advisor, who, again, is next to the president. So that character of having sort of shadow people in the White House, in what the West Wing, who are advising on the same things that these people in the cabinet agencies, which are two to five to ten blocks away, I think that tension really makes things very interesting. And then you couple that, one of the things I talk about in Fight House, is the development of a media that is far more curious, insatiable, mm-hmm. if you will, and able to get their message out much more quickly, I think that really changes the character. If I could tell just one quick story sure. about how this stuff has changed. 
when Dom Rumsfeld was chief of staff in the Ford administration, which was quite a rivalrous administration, there were a lot of problems they were attempting to address through a staff shakeup. This staff shakeup we now know through history as the Halloween massacre since it occurred in, in late October, early November. But what happened was that Rumsfeld, who was going to move to the Defense Department and Dick Cheney was going to be elevated from Deputy Chief of Staff to Chief of Staff, Rumsfeld finds out on a Sunday, on a day when he's supposed to go to the Washington Redskins game. I know we don't call them that anymore, but at the time they were the Washington Redskins. So Rumsfeld finds out on a Sunday that Newsweek has the story of this staff shakeup. Oh, no, it leaked. It's terrible. But he knew that Newsweek goes to print on Thursday night and appears on Friday. So Rumsfeld knew he had the whole week to deal with the problem of the leak. And he happily went to the Redskins game and then went back and started to deal with the issue. Hmm. That would never happen today. As with Twitter, the story would be out there immediately. Once a reporter has it, they tweet it and then they do the story. Completely different day and age. So so within that context, though, of a growing White House staff, of an altered, fundamentally altered staff, you say these White House fights usually have one or more of these three basic causes. Can you outline for our listeners what those three causes are? Yeah, it's interesting that you put it in the frame of causes. I put it in the frame of potential solutions. If a president wants to address White House rivalries, they can look at these three ways, these three levers that they could push. So number one is ideological alignment. If you have a White House staff that is on board ideologically, meaning, let's say, with a Republican administration, they're they're all conservatives or they're all moderates or they're all compassionate conservatives, they're all on board you're going to have less fighting. But if you have a split White House, like in the Reagan administration, where you had a real split between the moderates led by Jim Baker and the conservatives led by Ed Meese, that leads to more infighting. The second is process. Process is the way by which everything gets decided in the White House. And I understand this much better for having worked there. You get a sense of process working there that you don't get necessarily from going to the presidential libraries and the archives, which are amazing, but they don't really give you that full sense of how process governs everything in the White House. Mm -hmm. And process is who gets to go to which meeting? How long are the meetings? Is the president there? Is it a principal's meeting? Is it a deputy's meeting? What, who gets invited? Who does the paper? Who approves the memo? What Mm -hmm. groups in the White House get to see the memo before it goes forward? I mean, there are all these hundreds of process questions that go into every decision in the White House. If you have a tight process, then a lot of the issues get worked out, a lot of the difficulties, and everybody will feel like they had their say. But if you don't have a tight process, if people can circumvent Mm -hmm. the process or can do an end run around the chief of staff or the staff secretary's office or go to the president in private at night like Valerie Jarrett was rumored to do, she got the nickname the Night Stalker (laughs) as a result, then you have people who are going to be mad and they're going to take it out by either having fights with others or leaking to the press Mm -hmm. or just generally complaining that their perspective was not heard. Mm -hmm. And then the third is presidential tolerance. If a president is willing to put up with fighting, Lord knows there's going to be fighting. And if a president is, is going to say, I don't want to see this stuff, then you will see less of it. I'm not going to say there will be none of it because there's always some, but you will see less of it if a president makes clear that they don't want to see it happen in their house on their watch. So so with those three, particularly with the ideological and the process-driven disagreements, did you find any instances where these major rivalries were just based on personal animosity, uh, personalities that didn't mesh? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mentioned the Ford administration and there was this guy, Robert Hartman, Mm -hmm. and he was counselor to the president. 
He had been chief of staff when Ford was vice president, but he was not good at administrative stuff. Everybody knew he'd be a disaster as chief of staff as, as president. And so they gave him this title, and he was also a speechwriter. He was an old friend of Ford. You, you, you basically couldn't get rid of the guy, but you also couldn't work with him. Yeah. He was very thin-skinned. He was mercurial. He was uh, supposedly a bit of a, I don't want to say alcoholic, because that's a medical diagnosis, but he liked to drink. And he caused trouble with just about everybody. And the, um, the great, one of the great stories I have in the book is that 35 years later, after Hartman's long dead, after everybody, the Ford administration's long gone, Al Haig is interviewed for an oral history. The oral historian notes that Al Haig would turn red with anger at the mention of the name Hartman. <laughs> wow. So, uh, and then somebody else was asked about it, and they said, yes, it was possible to hate Hartman. <laughs> right. That's absolutely true. And they, the guy's <laughs> nickname at the White House was SOB. Oh. He said it was for sweet old Bob. <laughs> All right. You know, I'm sure, else. yes, yes, right. <laughs> wow. So, yes, there are definitely some personality-driven yeah, disputes. Yeah. So let's dig into some of the administrations that you detail in Fight House in the Truman presidency. You talk about the conflict between Secretary of State George Marshall and Clark Clifford, who was White House counsel and presidential advisor. What what caused that conflict and what does it teach us about the importance of proximity to the president in the White House? Yeah, that's a great question, because this one was about a very specific issue. Should the United States of America recognize the budding state of Israel? Now, today, U.S. and Israel are kind of intertwined militarily and they're close allies. And it's not even a question that the U.S. and Israel are allies today. But back then, it was a very open question. And in fact, the entire national security establishment led by George Marshall, who was not only a general in World War II, but a secretary of state and the man that Truman supposedly revered more than anyone else in public life. Marshall was opposed to recognizing Israel. And the rest of the national security establishment was with him. And Truman wanted to hear another perspective. So he asked Clifford, who at the time was a junior White House aide. He later became Secretary of Defense, as you guys know, but at the time, and that was in the Johnson administration. But in the Truman administration, he was relatively junior. And he was a smart lawyer, went to Washington University in St. Louis, was uh, trained as a trial attorney. And he prepares a legal brief on why the U.S. should recognize Israel. And they have this argument in front of President Truman. Mm. And Clifford basically carries the day. And Marshall is so, so mad that he never again speaks to Clifford or, get this, utters his name for the rest of his life. <laughs> now, that's wow. carrying a grudge. That's, that's some good hating. That is. Yeah. yeah. Right. It reminds me of the story about uh, Bobby Kennedy, that um, Joseph Kennedy, Kennedy's father, once said, Bobby's my boy. When he hates you, you stay hated. <laughs> <laughs> I will say for our listeners out there, years ago, I read Clark Clifford's memoirs, and it's a great read. I mean, the man saw a few things. This really an impressive book. So, okay. So talking about Bobby Kennedy. Saying that his career ended kind of in yeah, disgrace right. because of the banking scandals. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, really somebody who was a, a true American patriot and was involved in so many things over his career and did, as you say, see, see a lot. Yeah. So you mentioned Bobby Kennedy. Let's talk about the JFK and LBJ presidencies. They were in part at least defined by the rivalry between Bobby Kennedy, who was attorney general, and LBJ. What were the roots of that rivalry, and why was it so very fierce? Yeah, I love this one because it's so primal, mm -hmm. it's so intense, and the shifting powers between the two of them, like one's on top and one the other's on top and then the other's on top, and they, I mean, they, they keep shifting. And so first, Kennedy meets 
Johnson, when Kennedy is just an aide in the Senate, you know, he worked for Joe McCarthy and people don't often yeah. remember this, yeah. but, but Bobby Kennedy worked for Joe McCarthy and Lyndon Johnson comes up to McCarthy and Kennedy when they're sitting in the Senate dining room and Johnson shakes hands with the other people at the table, but Kennedy pointedly does not shake hands with Johnson and Johnson doesn't take kindly to that. And he kind of looms with his full six, three bulk <laughs> over Robert F. Kennedy until Kennedy finally relents and shakes his hand. So Johnson got his handshake, but he had made an enemy for life. Wow. And when Kennedy is attorney general. He is the most powerful person in the Kennedy administration, other than his brother, the actual president. And even though Lyndon Johnson is the vice president, he has very little power and very little to do. And the weird thing about administrations, as we all know, is that there's only two people who can't be fired, right? The first lady and the vice president. Hmm. And so Johnson is not happy in the role, but he he's stuck. You don't resign as vice president and the Kennedy administration is not going to fire him. And Robert F. Kennedy takes every advantage he can to lord it over Johnson or to make fun of him. They had a whole list of nicknames that they used to make fun of Johnson, which I, I call Rufus Cornpone, stuff like oh. that. And I have them all detailed in the book in Fight House. And then this tragic day happens in 1963 where John F. Kennedy is assassinated. And suddenly Robert F. Kennedy, going from the most powerful person in the administration, goes to perhaps the most hated person by the president who serves in the cabinet. Mm-hmm. And Robert F. Kennedy comes late to the first cabinet meeting after JFK's assassination. And Lyndon Johnson is convinced that Kennedy did did this, came late in order to show him up. Mm. And they have a screaming fight in the Oval Office after the cabinet meeting. And they don't speak again for two months. Now, you know, pandemic and all, I go two months without talking to people. I mean, it's not that unusual. But it is pretty unusual to go two months if you're the president of the United States not talking to the sitting attorney general. That is unusual. That's weird. And Kennedy sticks around for a while, but then he leaves and he becomes a senator. And even as a senator, he's tormenting Lyndon Johnson because Lyndon Johnson is pursuing the policy of continuing the struggle in Vietnam, thinking that that's what the Kennedy people would have wanted him to do. And that's what John F. Kennedy started. And he thinks that if he relents on Vietnam, Robert F. Kennedy will attack him from the right, meaning take a a more hawkish position Mm -hmm. on Vietnam. Mm -hmm. But what happens is Robert F. Kennedy then starts to attack Johnson from the left, taking a more dovish position. And so Johnson is betwixt and between, incredibly frustrated, eventually resigns and says, he, and he doesn't resign from the presidency, but he says he's not going to run for re-election. And then um, shortly after that, two months later, uh, Robert F. Kennedy is assassinated. But the whole 60s, in, in many ways, are defined by that relationship and by that rivalry. Right. So in in the next administration, after LBJ leaves, we get the return of Richard Nixon. And you detail the bitter feud between National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger and the Secretary of State William Rogers. How was that feud manifested and what did it reveal to you about the operations of the Nixon White House? Yeah, this one's super interesting because if you were going to do a tale of the tape, meaning you size up these two contestants, you would definitely, definitely say Rogers is going to be the winner. He's... Uh, far more patrician and he's older and he's old friends with Nixon and he's a previous attorney general and he's the secretary of state, which is, you know, you're congressionally, uh, you know, your Senate confirmed. And Kissinger is this guy with a heavy German accent. He's Jewish, which is certainly not an advantage in the Nixon administration. He's thin skinned. He's neurotic. He worked for Rockefeller, which is a bit of a kiss of death in Nelson Rockefeller in in the, in the Nixon administration. And so he has all the disadvantages 
except he's really, really smart. <laughs> and Nixon feels like he can't learn anything from Rogers because he considers himself superior to Rogers and uh, mentally and in terms of foreign policy, geostrategy, but he can learn from Kissinger. And so Kissinger has the advantage just based on his intellect and, and his knowledge. And Kissinger is still very neurotic about the whole thing. And when Kiss, when Nixon, who again is personal friends with Rogers, has private dinner with Rogers and his wife and Nixon's wife, Pat, Kissinger paces and he goes crazy and he drives Haldeman nuts, the chief of staff, uh, wondering what they're saying to each other. <laughs> but the fact of their personal friendship wasn't enough because Kissinger really outmaneuvered Rogers at every turn. Uh, he would do these crazy things like he was dating at one point Jill St. John, mm, who's a very yeah. attractive actress, a Bond, a Bond girl. And it shows up in the newspapers that Kissinger is dating Jill St. John. Kissinger goes to Nixon and complains that Rogers has leaked this. <laughs> well, the truth is Kissinger leaked it. And you know why? For two reasons. Number one is, well, he wants everyone to know he's dating Jill <laughs> right, St. John. You can't blame yeah. for that. But the second is he wanted Nixon to think that Rogers was a leaker. I see. And anybody who follows presidential politics knows that every administration complains about State Department and State Department leaks and State Department's a sieve and all that. And this contributed to Nixon's paranoia about leaks from, from in general, but also from State Department. And as we all know, Nixon creates his own unit to look for the leakers. They're called the plumbers. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the origin of the name plumbers. And the plumbers are the ones who eventually burgled the yeah. Watergate Hotel and lead to Nixon's downfall. Didn't exactly lead to good things for the president, for sure. No. And, and am I right in recalling that Rogers didn't even know uh, about Nixon's trip to China? Is that right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, he kept he was kept in the dark in this. And I have a great, great story in Fight House where they're on a trip to India and Pakistan. And uh, there's a meeting that Kissinger doesn't show up for, and he claims that he has a stomach ache. And one of Rogers's aides says, I bet Kissinger doesn't have deli belly. I bet he secretly went to China to work on uh, a, a, a rapprochement between the two countries or a meeting between the two countries. And Rogers turns white mm. because he knows that's exactly what Kissinger has wow. done. Wow. Amazing. So – and, and then here's one more story on that, is that in the famous meeting with Chairman Mao, Kissinger arranges it so Rogers, the Secretary of State, doesn't get to go to the meeting. And in his own memoir, even Kissinger acknowledges that he went a little far with yeah. that one. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. After Nixon resigns, of course, Ford comes into office and no other presidents faced that situation taking office after the predecessor's resignation. How did that unique situation in Ford's background affect the rivalries in that Ford White House. Yeah, we talked about a little bit about this with Robert Hartman, but there was just constant fighting in the Ford administration. They they didn't want to have a chief of staff who was as powerful, so they had kind of had the spokes on the wheel system a little bit. Uh, even though Rumsfeld was chief of staff, they called him staff coordinator so that he wouldn't actually be a chief of staff because after Haldeman, the title chief of staff was in, in bad odor. Uh, you had Hartman causing trouble. And remember, we talked about mm -hmm. the process a little bit. Hartman set himself up in the ante room outside the Oval Office. And from there, he would monitor the presidential inbox. And if he saw something he didn't like, he would remove it from the presidential inbox and slip it to Evans and Novak, who are wow. Washington's premier political columnists. But if he wanted to get something in there, he would just slip it in without going through the staffing process and yeah. go right to the president's eyes. Wow. So he was just a bad actor in there. And then you had a lot of the Nixon people who were down on the Ford people early on. 
the Nixon people wouldn't give the Ford people hard passes that allowed them to enter the West Wing. So the Ford people had to do their work without going into the West Wing. I mean, it was really, it was really crazy times. Sounds all very high schoolish, frankly, at times. (laughs) Uh, When Jimmy Carter entered the White House, he was determined to change things as an outsider, including White House operations. How effective was he in doing that? Well, as with many things, he was terrible. Uh, he he also had this prejudice against the concept of a chief of staff. So he starts without a chief of staff. And on the first day of the Carter administration, they're sitting around wondering if they should have a meeting. One of Carter's aides, who's an older fellow, Robert Lipschitz, says, well, I'm the oldest here, so maybe we, I'll, I'll call the meeting to order. But he wasn't the most senior in terms of stature or connection to Carter. And so he's basically ignored. So they looked to Hamilton Jordan, who is the senior strategist on the campaign, but not really an organization guy. He's more of a big think guy. And he says something like, we'll meet when I think we should meet, <laughs> which is you know, not very helpful. Yeah. And Mark Siegel, who was a, a junior White House aide at the time, saw the kind of chaos of the first day. And he said, if only the KGB could see us now, <laughs> which, which is a great and oh telling line. Gosh. So, uh, I mean, Carter's adamant refusal to have a chief of staff at the beginning of the administration, I think, really hurt his administration from day one. And then later, he relented and had a chief of staff, but made it Hamilton Jordan, who by his own admission, was not much in the administrative or logistical side of things. And so he wasn't a good chief of staff. And then finally, at the end, they bring in Jack Watson, who Jordan, Hamilton Jordan, hated. And Jack Watson had run the transition. He was an organization guy. He would have been good as chief of staff, but he only comes in at the end. Mm -hmm. And Ronald Reagan says to Jack Watson at the transition between the two administrations that my people told me that if you had been chief of staff from day one, I wouldn't be standing here right now. That's saying something. Meaning Reagan acknowledged that um, the Carter ineffectuality really stemmed from the fact that he didn't do what he should have done, which was put Jack Watson as chief of staff from the beginning. When Reagan comes into office, we see the so-called Troika, three men who were rivals but found a way to work together. Can you remind us who was in that Troika and how did it work? Yeah, well, I mentioned a couple of them already. James Baker was the chief of staff. But remember, he was a George H.W. Bush man. He had run George H.W. Bush's campaign. And he also had run against Reagan twice because he ran Ford's operation as well. And remember, Reagan challenged Ford in 1976. So he's kind of a two-time loser in the eyes of the Reagan people. Then you have Ed Meese, who was Reagan's chief of staff in California and thought he was going to be chief of staff in the White House and didn't get the job and is disappointed by that. And then you have Mike Deaver, who is deputy chief of staff, so technically junior to the other two, but he was very close to Nancy Reagan, who uh, was nicknamed Mommy. And uh, he was on the was the so-called Mommy Watch, meaning monitoring to make sure that Nancy Reagan didn't get upset or unhappy about anything mm-hmm. and keeping her up to date on what was going on. And her, his closeness to Nancy was, was in some ways the source of, of his power. And so the three of them are so determined that neither one will get a leg up that they they kind of are chained at the ankles. And whenever one of them meets with the president, the other two want to be there as well. And other aides like David Stockman said that they knew since the three of them were always there with the president, it gave him room to do other stuff uh, without being monitored too much by uh, by Baker or by Meeks. Of course, that falls apart. That that goes away in the second administration and second term of Reagan to bad effect, actually, with the bringing of Don Regan and all the the rivalries and mess that occurred after that. Yeah, well, this is what I call the worst staff trade in presidential history. Don Regan is mad at 
Baker about a, a leak that Baker had given to the Washington Post. And he calls him up and screams at him. And in the course of that phone call, they kind of reconcile and they decide to have lunch together. At that lunch, they suggest this idea of trading positions. Now, Baker didn't want to be seen as a political operative. He wanted to be seen as a statesman. And Reagan didn't like the fact that through the entire first term in the Reagan White House, he never met privately with President Reagan. So he wanted more face time with the president. So they have this trade and they each get what they want. But, you know, it's almost like an O. Henry story with getting what you want isn't necessarily going to get the best result. And Don Regan gets stuck in the midst of this Iran-Contra scandal. Nancy Reagan doesn't like him. She said he's pretty good at the chief part, but not so good at the of staff part. (laughs) And they have these screaming matches. In fact, Don Regan hangs up on Nancy Reagan when he's really tired of her in a phone call. And Jim Baker has a similar reaction to you guys. Yeah. <laughs> he says, that's not just a firing offense. That's a hanging <laughs> offense. <laughs> and of course, he is effectively hanged, meaning yeah. he gets fired uh, not long after that. And uh, But he gets his own revenge. Because the thing about these White House rivalries, they don't necessarily end when the administration ends. Because he goes and does this memoir. And in the memoir, he reveals that Nancy Reagan liked to get scheduling advice from an astrologer. Oh, and that was... I mean, it's, a, it's sort of a cruel thing to reveal because he, the, he had to have known that that is something that was going to stick with her the rest of her life. The presidency of George H.W. Bush, you show in White House that that White House proves maybe the lack of rivalries is not necessarily a good thing. Can you tell us about the Sununu Darman Alliance and how it largely dominated the operations of the George H.W. Bush White House? Yeah, look, Sununu and Darman both thought they were very smart. They actually were both both quite right. Uh, one bragged about his SAT scores, the other bragged about his IQ, okay. um, which you know not necessarily a good indication of maturity, <laughs> even if it's a good right. in, in, indication yeah. of intellect. And the two of them would berate and humiliate anybody who tried to come up with alternative ideas. So they would have these morning meetings in the Roosevelt Room, and there's a long oval table, and Sununu would sit at one side of it. Darman would sit at the other, and anybody who brought up any ideas that were contrary to how Sununu and Darman were thinking about it would get yelled at and brutalized by the two of them. And this process became so well known that it even got its own name. It's called being Darmanized, <laughs> just being humiliated in the morning staff wow. meeting. And so, with that approach, I mean, you know, think about uh, how it works in in the Kremlin or in, in any autocratic system. Uh, people don't want to speak up. Mm-hmm. People don't want to question what's going on. People don't want to come up with newer, innovative ideas. And, and that's really what happens in the Bush administration. And um, the uh, domestic policy advisor, a guy named Roger Porter, is a very smart and capable guy, but he was kind of. Uh, berated down or beaten down by the, those two guys at the top. And, and the joke about him was that he had he had seven inboxes because uh, he was a famously hard worker. And somebody said, could he at least have one outbox? Because <laughs> <laughs> the, the, you know, all these ideas would come to him and then he wouldn't push them forward in part because he was afraid of getting yeah, dormant. Yeah, sure. So President Clinton, when he came in, you say he oversaw a White House that was a disorganized mess. What What contributed to that situation and how is it affected by the Lewinsky affair and, and the impeachment proceedings in his second term? Yeah, well, it was different by the second term because yeah. then they were experienced. But at the beginning of the first term, first of all, you had a whole bunch of people with no White House mm-hmm. experience. Remember, the Reagan and Bush years went 12 years. Yeah. So it's a long time to go between administrations. And even then, the Carter people were not so uh, not viewed favorably 
by the the Clinton people. And so uh, Stu Eisenstadt, who was rumored to be a choice for deputy chief of staff, was vetoed because of his Carter ties. And he would have brought some experience and authority to the early days of that Clinton White House. Uh, the other thing that was going on there was the transition was a mess. They unwisely decided to have the transition in Little Rock. And the problem with Little Rock is that it has a very small airport. And it's not close enough to drive from D.C., although I mean, I've driven it, but it's a, you know, it's a hike. And the, that meant that anybody who showed up landing on a plane in Little Rock Airport was immediately identified by the reporters as someone who was up for a senior administration position. <laughs> so they couldn't keep anything secret. Uh, you had a couple of problematic picks blow up like uh, Zoe Baird and Kimba Wood, mm-hmm. these two women who both tried to become attorney general, and both of them had nanny tax problems. Mm-hmm. And they ended up, because Clinton had promised that there would be a, a female attorney general, they ended up with a woman named Janet Reno who had no relationship with Clinton. He didn't know her very well, and he ended up not liking her, but she stayed all eight years. So he was kind of stuck with picking someone who he didn't like as attorney general. And as you suggested, the Lewinsky scandal, it would have been good to have an attorney general you could trust given what was going on. But it is interesting, I say, in the second term, the A, the Clinton team is more experienced, but B, I think the Lewinsky scandal, instead of blowing up the administration as it could have, really kind of uh, had them circle the wagons because of the threat from the Republican Congress. And there's a great quote I have in the book from Ann Lewis, who is Barney Frank's sister and a White House aide under Clinton. And she says, Newt Gingrich, Henry Hyde, you want me to side with them? And she's questioned on her feminist credentials. Why didn't you oppose what Clinton was doing to a a young woman? Um, And she probably did as a feminist oppose it, but she opposed Newt Gingrich and she opposed Henry Hyde more. And so it's the, uh, it's, it's kind of the external threat that bonds them in that second term and leads to less infighting than I would have imagined mm-hmm. finding when I started mm-hmm. doing the research for the for fight house. Yeah. So you've given examples of Rogers and Kissinger in your book. You talk about Brzezinski and Vance during Carter's administration in the George W. Bush administration, uh, the infighting that we saw with Rumsfeld, Powell, Cheney, Rice. Is, is there a natural propensity for there to be more rivalries when it comes to foreign affairs versus domestic affairs? Uh, Yeah, I think there is. And I talk about it in my book. And there's a number of reasons why. Uh, Number one is the stakes are higher. Right? You know, if there's a big welfare bill, okay, fine. You know, we we pay more in taxes, there are some disincentives to work, whatever. I mean, you know, those are problems, but it's not grand historical geostrategic stuff. Uh, Number two is it's very hard to compromise, right? On, On that welfare bill I'm talking about, you could say, okay, let's, you know, have uh, you know, let's do 5 billion more, 5 billion less. I mean, you can, you can, you can come in the, in the middle of two and a half billion. It's very hard to compromise on invade Iraq versus don't invade Iraq. Right. <laughs> it's kind of a, you know, a, a zero sum binary choice. So it's harder to compromise. It's higher stakes. People might pay more attention to it. And there's also this kind of tendency for foreign pe- foreign policy people to stick around for a long time. And they're, they're there decade after decade. And if they hate each other in the 50s, they'll hate each other in the 60s and they'll hate each other in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a bunch of reasons why yeah. uh, the foreign policy stuff tends to be more rivalrous and more challenging. Fascinating. I know President Obama promised no drama. The, the no drama Obama okay. White House was he successful in doing that. I would say that he was successful in making it less filled with drama, but no drama is a promise that he couldn't quite keep. Uh, He, look, Obama had seen how 
rivalries had really torn apart previous Democratic campaigns and administrations. And he was determined not to have that happen in his administration. Uh, he had a very, on the campaign, he had a very strict rule called, called the no a-holes rule. <laughs> and they, you know, they were a little more explicit in how they right, said it, right. but in the family podcast. Uh, and they also had another thing called don't F the structure, which gets to the process point I made earlier. You really had to adhere to the process. You weren't supposed to circumvent. You weren't supposed to go around things. You're supposed to stick to the way of doing mm-hmm. things. And then you also had on presidential tolerance, Obama didn't want to hear it. And so I tell the story in the book of Alyssa Mastromonaco, who was deputy chief of staff, who at one point was unhappy with a New York Times article that characterized her job not as grandiosely as she would have liked. And she writes a blistering email to the entire senior staff calling people out for leaking against her. And Obama calls her into the Oval Office the next day. She doesn't know why. Deputy Chief of Staff gets called to the Oval a lot. And he looks at her and he says, that was quite the email you sent. So he was telling her he was aware of what she was doing and in in a gentle way disapproving Mm -hmm. of it. So I think for all those reasons, Obama really did cut down on infighting. But again, that doesn't mean that there wasn't any. And one thing that I discovered that I found, and I don't think I would have found during the Obama administration, so I was glad I did the research after when more memoirs had come out and we had more information, was this gender-based divide in the Obama White House, where the women of the Obama White House, they kind of stuck together. They had a nickname for themselves, which you can read the book for, but it's not the nicest name. I'm not going to say it on a family Mm -hmm. podcast. And they would have dinners together where men were not invited to them. They had this theory of amplification, where if a woman says something, another woman was supposed to echo it and say, I agree with Sally or Jody or whatever. Hmm. And there were some times when men like Dan Pfeiffer didn't get jobs that they expected to get and, and, and frankly deserved to get. But the Obama White House was so determined to give this particular position to a woman that they, they gave it to a woman who had not served on the Obama campaign. Hmm. And so Pfeiffer was really mad to be passed over. And again, he had some right to do to yeah. be so angered. So we go from a relatively drama-less White House to the Trump White House on the other end of that spectrum. Was the much-publicized infighting of the Trump White House unique, or was it just a continuation of what we'd seen in past administrations? So there's two things going on here. Number one is I wrote this book during the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have access to the same kind of information I had for other administrations. There's no oral histories. There's yeah. no archives. Um, there are some memoirs, but really not of the top, top people. And uh, I think we need to wait to see what that stuff's going to look like. So, so A, I don't have as much information. But B, there's, there was fighting in the Trump White House, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. But I think the point of White House is there's fighting in every administration, yeah. and it's really on a scale. It's not like the Trump White House has fighting and the other administrations don't. It's just there's a scale, and I would say that the Trump White House was within the range of fighting of other administrations, but on the far fighty, if I can make up that word, the yeah. fighty end of that scale. So I would yeah. say it was one of the most rivalrous, but I wouldn't say that it was unique and it had rivalries that other administrations didn't. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned earlier the impact of social media today and how – who was it? Um, Rumsfeld didn't have to worry about the immediacy of a story going out. Has the social media just changed that immediacy or has it changed the nature of rivalries in some way? Well, it's certainly changed the immediacy. There's no mm-hmm. doubt of that. I mean I have a great quote in the book from Peter Robinson who was yeah. a speechwriter under Reagan. 
And he says, and I'm going to read it directly, there was a lot more infighting going on in the Reagan White House than anybody was aware of because there was no such thing as tweeter, Twitter, twatter in those days. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's just a wonderful quote. That is. And I think Robinson points to something that's, that's really important, that you have a media that is looking for this stuff all the time, and they have access to platforms where they can get the information out immediately in a way that they couldn't. So I think that's part of what's going on. Yeah. But also, I mean, some of these, there's really deep-seated rivalries and, and serious ideological divides in some of the disagreements I talk about, like Baker versus Meese, for example, or Robinson, when he's trying to get those words, tear down the wall, tear down this wall into Reagan's Berlin speech. You know, there, there is real opposition, including Colin Powell, who is on the other side of the divide, and they, and they fought pretty significantly on this. And and Robinson acknowledges that he actually circumvented the process, something I advise against doing, but he circumvented the process by getting the words directly to Reagan. Reagan saw them and he liked them. And eventually when the State Department still wants to fight on the issue, Colin Powell, who's now National Security Advisor, says, well, you know, the president has decided. So even though he, Colin Powell didn't want the words in the speech initially, once he saw the president had decided, he said, okay, well, you know, right. the, 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 the gig is up. Right. Well, Tevi, it's time for our final round with a few fun questions about our White House fighters. This is going to be good. Here we go. Oh, I love this part. Who was the most aggressive? Well, I think I already mentioned uh, Bob Hartman. Mm. Uh, he got people so mad that at one point Al Haig grabbed an aide to Hartman by the neck and said, listen, you, if you don't get, if you tell that fat crowd and Hartman was of German descent and obviously a little overweight, you tell that fat crowd that if he doesn't cut this out, he's going to leave this place on a stretcher. Oh my God. So, uh, <laughs> so he was aggressive, but uh, Haig was aggressive in response as well. Uh, who would you say was the most resilient? Oh, clearly David Gergen. I mean, oh, that guy yeah. was like a cockroach. I mean, he just kept showing up in different administrations, Republican and yeah. Democrat. And in every one of them, he was a problem. I mean, he was leaking and he was fighting with people and he had all these underhanded maneuvers, but he kept showing up. And he was there in the Nixon White House and the Ford White House, the Reagan White House, and eventually in the Clinton White House. Uh, he definitely the most resilient. Who would you say would be the big time wrestling fighter, the guy who would be all show? Oh, that's got to be Jim Baker. You just couldn't beat Jim Baker. And he was amazing. I mean, he would stick a a shiv in you and you wouldn't even (laughs) know it. He was, uh, I mean, he had leaks to to the press galore. I mean, he was talking to reporters all the time. And uh, I mean, he just knew what he was doing. And there's a reason people say he was the greatest chief of staff, White House chief of staff in history. I mean, he really knew how to do the job. The man who ran Washington as Peter Baker. Yeah, Peter Baker. Right. And kind of on the opposite side of that, who would be the fighter in a legitimate boxing match? Someone who was all business. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I already mentioned Haig in the physical confrontation. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of Lyndon Johnson. I got to oh, say, I mean, that guy, you know, he, he, he was on the south side of things in under Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, but, you know, for structural reasons that he couldn't yeah. get around. But once he was in charge, man, I mean, he was the mm-hmm. he was the, the man on the mountain. He was on the king of the hill. And um, you did not want to disappoint Lyndon Johnson. I mean, he was calling his aides at all hours. And back in those days, there's no cell phone. So if he's calling you, he's calling you at your desk and you better be there. (laughs) And he would ask the White House operators who his aides were calling to know who was leaking. He asked the White House motor pool for a list of where people were going when the when the military sergeants drove people around. I mean, he was he was wired into everything. What a character. Uh, 
And then of, of all the non-presidents that make up the White House uh, staff, who had the greatest potential to be president that never was? That is another good question. I mean, you know, sometimes you have a politician like uh, John Sununu, who was a former governor. I think mm-hmm. he thought about running, but you know, uh, I think he had some temperament issues. Um, Colin Powell mm-hmm. uh, was widely rumored to yeah, be considering right. runs for president. And I, I think, you know, he probably couldn't do it today, but in a, maybe in a less ideological time, he, he could have done it. So, you know, there, there were a couple of real contenders there over the years. Certainly Bobby Kennedy, I think, would go in there, of course, right? Yeah, I mean, you said White House, and he was uh, an AG, so I didn't count him. But, I mean, he he got close, that's 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 for sure. sure. And Al Haig ran for president, not well. (laughs) Oh, I Uh, forgot about that, yeah. Yeah. Dick Cheney became vice president Mm -hmm. from a deputy Mm -hmm. chief of staff position and chief of staff position. So, yeah, I mean, there there were some contenders for this one. It's a good one. But, of course, according to Al Haig, he was in charge for a little bit, right? He was in charge (laughs) here at the White House. Right, right. So, Tevi, where can our listeners go to learn more about your work, and what's next for you? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Tevi Troy, T-E-V-I-T-R-O-Y. You can go to my website, tevitroy.org, T-E-V-I-T-R-O-Y dot O-R-G. And you can sign up for my mailing list of articles. I've always got, I've got a whole bunch of new articles in the pipeline. And I'm working on a book idea anyway. I can't really say what it is on the air yet, but I would love to come talk to you guys when the book is out. But I'll give your listeners a tantalizing hint that the book subject is going to be Presidents and Blank because all my books have been presidents and something. Yeah, Tevi, you've, you've written a several several really good books that uh, we'd love to have you back on and talk about some of the, some of the others. Great. Uh, disasters in the presidency or uh, of what presidents read or intellectuals in the president. I'm, I love all those subjects. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation. We look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thanks for joining us on American POTUS. Thank you, Tevi. We appreciate your time. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. If you have a moment, please rate and review this show on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens to and participates in the podcast. We'd like to thank author Tevi Troy for joining us on this episode about White House infighting. More information on his books, along with all our other terrific experts, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. And while you're there on our website, drop us a note. We'd love to see your questions or comments on this episode or suggestions you might have for future topics. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow or like us on Facebook or Twitter so you'll be the first to know about new episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, and original music score is by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from George Washington, quote, Associate yourself with men of good quality if you esteem your own reputation, for tis better to be alone than in bad company. <laughs>